Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life too, because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Repatha.com or call 1-844-REPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Repatha. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. The year is 2018, and we are going to talk about a superhero movie, about the choices we have in life, about metaphors that... It- who are you? It, why, why do you look like me, but older and really sad? The year is 2018 and, you know, let's talk about some Marvel movies. Here we go. Hey, hey, you. What are you? Why? That's me as a pig? I look kind of cute. The year is 2018 and let's just do it. Spider-Man, Spider-Man into, into the, the Spider-Verse. And welcome to Unspooled. I am Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best movies ever made. Are we just picking the greatest films ever made? No. Are we picking hidden gems? Yes. Are we going all around the world asking all the big questions like, if it's popular, does it mean it's good? If everyone thinks it's the best, is it really We are getting into the nitty-gritty, and we always need you to help us along our way. You can join us on our Discord at discord.gg slash paulshear. There's an entire unspooled section there. And we are ending our month of animation uh, by talking about the first Marvel movie that we've ever done on this show. And it's not even a full Marvel. It's a Sony Marvel movie, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Amy, are you ready for this? I am ready for this. I think this is a really, really fun way to close out our animation month, a pun that just gets, wow, better and better every single time we make it happen. You know, and before we get into the Spider-Verse, because there's a lot to talk about there, I want to talk about 
uh, the reaction that we've had to Top Gun. People really enjoyed our Top Gun episode, while everyone unanimously agrees that it should not go to space they all felt it was a worthy watch. <laughs> and I always get caught on this idea of, well, I love it. It's good. It's dumb, but it's not one of the best. But aren't those the movies that we go back to all the time? I think it is good to rewatch a movie that is beloved with these glasses on, with these aviator glasses on, you know, because I think that helps you think more critically about a movie that you absolutely love. I still love Top Gun. I still think Top Gun is dumb as hell. I will still continue to watch Top Gun again. And I really love the pleasure of watching something while analytically talking to myself about why it is really, really idiotic in a nine, 900 different ways. <laughs> what I mean, is that's your... the greatest pleasure, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have seen People take Top Gun to the stage. We've seen people take Point Break to the stage. There's a love to these movies. But I think what makes them so good and what we've been talking about a little bit is this idea of star power. And I've been talking to so many people after that episode came out. And it's really been this interesting moment of recognizing Tom Cruise as IP. And I, and I mean that in a way where he has created franchises. He hasn't gotten himself into a franchise. The only time really, I guess you could say that he got into a franchise was with the, uh, was it the dark universe that failed? Oh gosh, the, the mummy. mummy. I oh. wanted to like the mummy. That was really a really weird misstep for him. That may be the worst film that adult Tom Cruise has ever done. Although I will say, after our conversation, I went back and rewatched Legend, you know, because we were talking yes. a lot about the transition that Tom Cruise made between Legend and Top Gun. And I was like, I always put off watching Legend because I, I know that it doesn't hold up, but I'm going to watch it one more time. And oh, my God, it really felt like unnerving, almost like staring into the uncanny valley to see a figure on screen who is Tom Cruise and yet has no idea how to hold the camera. Because that's what really? you see when you watch Legend. You watch somebody who is just an actor. He's just an actor in a movie with a lot of stuff going on and the camera kind of moves over him and then goes and looks at everybody else because there's a lot of interesting things in the frame. He has not in that movie learned how to command attention. And the leap between Legend and Top Gun, I mean, it's like going Mach 9. It's wild. And I want to apologize, by the way. I was confused when I saw Top Gun, the rewatch that we had here on the show. I kept hearing them say, I'm your rear, but it's I'm your Rio. I didn't know that. So I kept on saying, oh, well, his rear died. And maybe it was the Quentin Tarantino monologue that kind of influenced me. But uh, it made sense because that person is behind him. So I thought, oh, that's the rear, but it's Rio. So I understand that there's no reason for anyone to send me any more uh, DMs, uh, <laughs> tweets. I got it. I'm all I'm all OK. I'm up on that. Um and well, Paul, I, I'll be your rear. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll be your Rio. Now, <laughs> my question to you, Amy, is many people asked, what would be the Tom Cruise movie that you would send to space? Now, you can change this, but right now, your gut Tom Cruise movie that you would send to space. Oh, my God. Your favorite. Oh, it's tough. Overall, the first one that I'm really thinking of in my head is Born on the Fourth of July. Wow. I deeply love 
4th, on, but on the 4th of July. That, although then I say that out loud and then I want to say Magnolia, but then I honestly think there's not enough Tom Cruise in Magnolia for me to be like, that will be mm-hmm. my cruise card. I'm not going to play it specifically on that one. My favorite Tom Cruise performance, believe it or not, is actually in Interview with a Vampire. I think he's phenomenal in that movie. Like that is my, that is my favorite Cruise is in that movie. I think the way he plays Lestat is the best acting he ever did. But uh, I kind of want to make like a really sadistic argument for Jerry Maguire because that movie is really radically misremembered as are all of Tom Cruise's movies. You know, as like the big love story of like, you complete me. I think that movie is, it, it was aiming to be the modern day apartment and it it was so charming that people didn't realize how deeply sad and cynical it was, just like The Apartment. That movie, if you think that Jerry Maguire walks out of that movie a happy person, oh boy, am I going to sell you a Spider-Verse? Like, wow, uh, okay. I like this. <laughs> I like that you are saying that Jerry Maguire is a downer. Oh, for sure. Oh, Did you great. leave midway through? Oh, just keep watching, man. Like I have, I have. I'll just say this. The last shot of Jerry Maguire is not him and, and Renee Zellweger holding hands. It's them both holding Jonathan Lipnicki's hands. That couple is not going to last, but okay. they do love the kid. It's the story of here's why I'm screwed up. You know, future Jonathan Lipnicki. My mom married this guy and they did not get along, but they stayed together for me. And boy, is a lot of guilt and obligation. Wait, now that I'm talking, what if we did Risky Business, though? That's I oh. love Risky Business. I think the movie that I would send and I'm just going on a gut right here, like a, a true gut. I think the one role, or there's two, where he is truly doing something incredibly different um, is Tropic Thunder. Like he is so that character. And you very rarely get to see Tom Cruise doing a straight up comedy. Like he can be funny or I think he's charming. I don't think he's funny. He's not landing like laugh lines in movies. And that movie, he is driving comedy. And it's such a giant transformation that I really, truly enjoy that performance. And I'm talking about performances. So I'm looking at it and thinking about it. And I'm also thinking about Collateral because that's also a Tom Cruise performance that in this world of Tom Cruise performances feels incredibly different. And I think that's what you're saying about Born on the Fourth of July, too. It's, it is uh, a transformation. It is a different type of character. But this, those two really pop to me. It is. Although I do think it's funny that people really think that Collateral is the first time Tom Cruise played a villain. It's like, oh man, have I got some early Cruises to show you? Like, oh, I would yeah. argue that like, Cruise is kind of the villain in half of his movies. Cocktail? I would argue that... The stuff he does in Cocktail? Oh boy. I would argue he's the villain in Top Gun. Because all Iceman is telling him is to fly safer. And he's like, no, man, fuck you. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like, I mean, that that is if you break it down, like Iceman's not like, hey, man, <laughs> I'm a dick. Like Iceman's only complaint is like, hey, can you keep us all safe? Yeah. And he's like, no, no, I won't. I refuse. Right. Just because Iceman looks like an 80s bully does not yeah. mean he is incorrect in this one. Like you're naturally yeah. to be like, oh, yeah, the blonde with the flat top. He's got to be a dick. No. No. Iceman is correct on this. Iceman, yeah, Iceman is, is doing wrong. his job. Yeah, he's he is <laughs> in he arguably is the hero of the movie. Like 
another movie would put him as the lead and have to deal with this renegade rogue asshole that he has to take down. But uh, anyway, I don't want to get into all that. I do want to say to everyone who is listening that don't worry. Just because we did uh, Porco Rosso does not mean that we are never going to do another uh, Miyazaki movie. People are really thinking that we spent our Miyazaki yen uh, on Porco Rosso. We just... That was the first entry point. He deserves to be revisited. We will revisit. Uh, We just didn't want to do an entire series of Miyazaki because we want to keep the show always alive and different. So don't worry. We will get to these. We will get to these. But there's a lot of passion about what the best one is. And yes, that's a good one, but it's not the best one. Don't you understand? And uh, that's a lot on the Discord, and I love the Discord, and I love the conversations on the Discord, but I just want everyone to know, we will get we will get to it. This show is about taking detours. Uh, it's not always about saying one and done. We may pick only one to go, but we will explore many. We've done it before with other uh, directors. So wait, can we do all of these Tom Cruise movies at some point? I would do a whole Tom Cruise show <laughs> with you. That would be great. Um, all right, so uh, Amy... Are you ready to finally, after four years, get into the MCU? Let's multiverse it. Ooh, that's my spider webs flinging. Swap, swap. <laughs> the year is 2018. Over 2 billion viewers tune in and watch The Wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Over 900 cities worldwide participate in March for Our Lives. It's a demonstration against gun violence and mass shootings following a shooting in Parkland, Florida. And after being stranded for 17 days, a boys football team is rescued from a cave in Thailand. And you know what else happened in 2018, Amy? Uh, No. Unspooled (gasps) released its first episode. That's right. And the hot films of this year, which we have not yet done, uh, were Black Panther, Avengers Affinity War, Jurassic Park, Fallen Kingdom, and today's film Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And what was on the radio? Lay it all down. (laughs) Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. This is, I would call it, the brainchild of many, many, many brains. It's got a three-person directing team, Bob Parachetti, Peter Ramsey, Ronnie Rothman. It's got a writing team that's Rothman, Phil Lord. It's got a producing team, Phil Lord and Chris Miller and Amy Pascal. And it is also, you know, the brainchild inspired by lots and lots of different comic book writers who created all of these characters and multiverses and versions of Spider-Man that get unleashed here. Um, this film starts with 13-year-old Miles Morales. He's voiced by Shamik Moore, who lives in this world with like a hip and confident 20-something cool Spider-Man voiced by Chris Pine. And that Spider-Man dies trying to close this like multiverse collider portable that this bad guy Kingpin, who's voiced by Liev Schreiber, wants to use to get his wife and child back from the other side. Um, Do help. Other Spider-Men and women and girls and pigs from other dimensions must join up to save the day. Uh, You've got a 30-something depressive Spider-Man. You've got a teen Spider-Gwen. You've got a kid, Betty Parker, in this biomechanical spider suit. You've got a black and white Spider-Man noir. And you have Peter Parker. These different Spider-Men are voiced by, respectively, Jake Johnson, Haley Steinfeld, Kimiko Glenn, Nick Cage, and John Mulaney. Uh, this movie is just a crazy, hyper-colorful crack-up that tells the usual story about heroes and emotional growth through a half-dozen fractalized versions and with beautiful, gorgeous animation. Take a listen. 
In your universe, there's only one Spider-Man. But there is another universe. It looks and sounds like yours, but it's not. My name's Miles Morales. Hey, kid. You're like me. How? I knew my day would come around this time. I know it's complicated. Just had to you wanna know what happened to you? I can teach you to be Spider-Man. Mm, I love this burger, so delicious. Mm, one of the best burgers I've ever had. You have money, right? I'm not very liquid right now. I think you're gonna be a bad teacher. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse opened on December 14th, 2018 to tremendous success. We're talking both financially and artistically. It earned $375 million around the globe and it won the Academy Award for Best Animated Film, making it the first non-Disney or Pixar film to win that award since Ringo in 2011. And it's the first non-Disney Pixar film since Happy Feet to win when another Disney or Pixar film was in contention. I mean, Ringo won because they weren't even playing that year. Um, also big that weekend on the Billboard charts, a song about a multiverse of dating possibilities that result in emotional growth. It is Ariana Grande and thank you next. Thought I'd end up with Sean, but it wasn't a match. Wrote some songs about Ricky, now I listen and laugh. Even almost got married, and for Pete I'm so thankful. Wish I could say thank you to Malcolm, cause he was an angel. Everything you listed of the year 2018, the one that sounds the most bizarre that it is four years old to me is her breaking up with Pete Davidson. I'm like, really? You know, I thought that was yesterday. I I feel like it's ages ago. I'm like, just four years ago? Pete Davidson has been uh, seen with so many women in that period of time that it, it actually, when I look back at it, it feels like, oh, those were the good old days. Pete and Ariana. <laughs> I'm happy for them. I was happy for them. And now I'm happy for him. Everyone should be happy in their love life. Uh, But Amy... (laughs) Some people can be miserable, but he can be happy. It's fine. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you about this movie because I think this is an outlier in the Marvel Universe. In the sense that, I said it in the beginning, it's not a straight-up Marvel movie. It's a co-production between Sony and Marvel. But also, it doesn't have to stick to anything truly in the MCU proper, right? So anything that they do is outside of the world that Kevin Feige has created, Um, which I think makes this movie incredibly interesting because they can do a lot of stuff that you can't do in the other movies because the other movies have to follow, you know, marching orders. There's a plan. And this movie sits on the side and can create its own world. And I think one of the things that I love about it so much is that it's aware that it's a superhero movie and it comments on it and it actively tries to 
do something different. It takes the knowledge that we all have and flips it on its head in multiple ways. No, I totally agree. I feel like the operating thrust of Spider-Verse is freedom. And freedom to me is so important when, you know, over in the Marvel Universe, everything feels like a Lego block putting in place to build towards the next film. of like the giant, all right, all right, here's the world doing whatever, whatever, whatever. This movie, from the style of animation to what they put on screen, the main principle that everybody kept repeating is do what looks cool. You know, this movie has tons of different type of animation styles. You know, it's got like cross hatching and Kirby crackle and it's got, you know, like all sorts of dots and bleeps and any sort of color combining on the screen. It's it's a movie where they don't even use like character references for the animation. Usually when you do an animated film, you've got kind of like these set poses, these set models. The, The principle for everything that was on screen is just like do what looks cool. And that is so freeing, isn't it? Well, yeah, and as a comic book fan, it feels like you are watching a comic book come to life, and it starts off with that comic code stamp, which is a staple in a lot of, uh, you know, comics. I I actually have used it in my comic books that I've written for Marvel because we've used it to cover up extremely violent images, but the idea being it's it, it feels like... As you open this book, you are reading a comic book. The way that the ink blurs on the edges of a printed comic book, you see that here. And it is incredibly immersive. It feels brand new. This style of animation that I think we're seeing a lot more uh, successful animated films start to do was really started here, right? Like, I think Mitchell's versus Machines definitely carries this forward. Bad Guys, which just came out a couple of weeks ago, carries it forward like they're mixing animation styles and it creates something that feels a little bit more alive than the typical like 3d animation that we're used to not that there's anything wrong with that but it just there's something incredibly artistic and and like you said it feels like man-made not computer-made if that makes sense wait so I am not the expert at all in comic books. Like when I was a kid, I read Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Archie and Married with Children. And that was about the extent of it when I was mm-hmm. little. Is the Comics Code Authority a real thing? Oh, like, absolutely. Like, yes. But it, like, do they have authority? Yes. The Comic Code is real. And it was started back in the 50s because they felt that there were certain books, comic books that were too grisly, right? There were... Issues that were coming out that parents assumed, well, they're comics, they're for kids, but they had this content that people were rebelling against. So they created this comic code, which wasn't a government organization, but it was a a level of conduct, right? It was a voluntary code. Uh, There was no law requiring. Like the MPAA, where it's like, okay, we're going to, we, the makers of movies, are going to give ourselves a seal of approval or a rating system so that the government doesn't do do it for us. Like that? I guess I guess so. I mean, here, though, the code was voluntary. So, right, there's no law saying that if you released a comic book, it had to go through an approval process. But it gave parents like this extra reassurance. And one of the interesting things, especially with Spider-Man, that happened with the comic book's code is that um, Stan Lee wrote this three-part arc about Peter Parker and Spider-Man tackling drug addiction and drug abuse. And the code would not approve that storyline because like, well, you're using drugs. That's against the code. And Stan Lee's like, fuck it. 
I'm just going to release it anyway. I'm going to take the code off the book and then I'll put the code back on. But it was a first move of someone in that kind of position, Marvel or DC, like these books that are deemed for kids that kind of stepped away from it. And then, you know, in the 80s came violence became a little bit more acceptable. So the code was on a lot of those books. And now it's kind of been abandoned in the 2000s. It's still, you know, it's no longer an industry standard. I think it's also the idea of what we were talking about a lot lately, which is the idea that like, well, comic books are for kids. And that is no longer the case. And I don't even think it started off as the case, but just because people assumed it was, they wanted to make sure it was monitored or censored. Anyway, so that comic book code is a real thing, and I love that it's stamped on the front of this as a throwback and an acknowledgement. This movie is all about acknowledgements. I mean, if you freeze the movie on any train scene, Stan Lee is in every train car. Wait, what? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's like they drew Stan Lee in every train car in this movie. If you look at Miles Morales' phone in the movie, he has some of the great Spider-Man creators in his uh, in his iPhone contact list, like there's a, you know, B. Bendis and everybody is listed in there. Obviously, there's a Stan Lee cameo in this, but it very much uh, bows down to comics and and celebrates comics. And like I said, it even takes that style of comics where it has that blurry, grainy line that I think. Everyone who's read like a, you know, a single issue comic has a familiarity with. Yeah, that's true. The way that things sort of seem to be almost um, radiating energy from the edge of, yeah. the, of, the, of somebody's body, like a hot pink halo kind yeah. of smear. Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting because like I do feel that if you were watching Spider-Man, it just hit pause at any moment, which I guess I haven't done. So I'm speculating. But I feel like if you hit pause it looks comic book-y in every frame, right? Like the way that there's like words on the screen and dots and texture well, pictures. You, like, but I think I if you think... pause any movie, it would look perfect, right? And here, right. the imperfections make it, I think, pop and feel more alive. Because I think computer animation sometimes can look too perfect. Well, that's what I think is so interesting about the push to make computer animation more and more realistic is... Well, to what end? Because if you make animation look like real life, why bother? Unless you're like, I'm going to make this tiger sing karaoke, but it'll look like a real tiger singing karaoke. Cool. Sure. But why not just have a cartoon tiger singing karaoke if you're going to make us pretend? Like, (laughs) I, I, you know, I, I like animation that is deliberately animation that isn't trying to like hew to some standard of realism because t- animation should be something different. It is, it is physical expression, color and image and, and, and deliberate non-realism. And I do believe that one of the things that they really wanted to do here was make sure that an artist's hand was on every single frame. So after the movie was computer generated, they went in with hand-drawn artistry and it was refined by an artist's hand. So these you know, these visuals that you were seeing are computer visuals that then have an artist on top of. It's almost a reverse process of going back from hand-drawn into computer animation. They went backwards to it in a way. I mean, it is wild. Like, I was reading that, you know, Toy Story, right? You mm-hmm. know, which we covered on the show. Uh, to use that as an example, like, when that was made, 
huge feat of animation. Everybody's like, oh my God, you're blowing my mind, Toy Story. And Toy Story had, I believe, 27 animators on the team behind it. Uh, Spider-Verse has 177. Yeah, the largest crew ever uh, that Sony Pictures used for animation in a film. And I think that this movie, in many ways, I was thinking about Akira. The visuals here pop for me the same way the visuals of Akira popped. And I think it is the evolution of Akira in a way, in the sense that I think when everyone saw this movie, at least I did, I was like, whoa, what is this? So I, in, I know I'll take a lot of flack from this, but I do think that this could be the entry point for people who were influenced by Akira get to make their movie and then they do something even more. I mean, there are nods to Akira in this movie, like the visuals of the city flying apart in the super collider. That is pretty much something that we saw in Akira. You know, that this idea of the the worlds kind of colliding, it felt like it had these throwbacks, not only to comic books, but to animation styles, which I love so much. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, Peter Ramsey, one of the three directors, like he said that his nod to Akira was in like the way they captured smoke and flame in here, the effects of that. But also just on like an obvious level, you get like cars and things zipping that leave lights behind them. That kind of like that light effect that I think is so beautiful in Akira. I'm actually really glad that we started this series with Akira and are now ending with this, you know, because I feel like Spider-Verse is a film that is very steeped in like the knowledge and inspiration of animation coming out of Japan. I mean, not even just Akira, but like, you know, they specifically said um, at the time, I found this interview that like Bob uh, Parashetti gave to, I think IGN Japan, which I had to like translate from Japanese. So, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm very, very off. We'll see how Google Translate did. But he said in that interview, you know, that Miyazaki was like major to him too. That like to be an animator right now in this current time means, you know, living in a worldview that has been so thoroughly per- like permeated by Miyazaki that he just is at the center of American animation and culture too. Like you can't not be inspired by Miyazaki doing anything in animation in like the year 2018, that he is just everywhere. And continues to push it forward even more. Like there's a moment where Miles Morales' uncle is at home watching TV and blink and you'll miss it, but he's watching Community in which Donald Glover is in a Spider-Man suit, but they're mixing in live action into that. They also are taking old comic book covers, putting that in, like they're mixing media throughout the entire movie, right? (laughs) Like it's just not one style. That's what we're talking about. It's not just one style here and there, but it is even pushing it in ways that we haven't seen, like to see these little Easter eggs throughout the film, not just jokes, but like animation Easter eggs. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Like not only are the characters designed in different ways, you know, to have like, say like the black and white cross hatching of Spider-Man Noir or like the more like Sailor Moon anime style of like Penny Parker. But I mean... To talk about the whole community of it all, I was like, that's right. I totally forgot that there was a world in which like Donald Glover was positioned as maybe being in a live action Spider-Man and the internet yeah. burned down. Like now Donald Glover, you know, being in a Spider-Man movie wouldn't, I think, seem as insane. It kind of felt like time traveling to go back and find this clip of Donald Glover talking about how crazy it was within the last decade 
that like, you know, a young black actor would be playing a superhero. They were talking about on this geek blog about, you know, making Spider-Man, you know, they were, they're redoing it. So they said that maybe this new Spider-Man, since they're making it so, you know, quickly after making these other Spider-Mans, maybe they should make it real different, you know, make it kind of like dark and edgy, like the Dark Knight and put it in modern day times and stuff. And maybe, you know, Spider-Man, maybe he doesn't have to be white. Maybe he can be black or Hispanic or something like that. And then somebody put a big picture of me in the comments. It was like, Donald Glover can play Spider-Man. He's nerdy. <laughs> And I was like, okay. And somebody sent that to me. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'll put that up. So I put it up on my Twitter. And I was like, oh, Donald for Spider-Man, let's do this. You know, kind of joke. But also, like, who doesn't want to be Spider-Man? That'd be cool. And that's when the world went crazy. <laughs> and half the world was like, Donald for Spider-Man. We're only going to watch the next Spider-Man of Donald Glover's playing Peter Parker. And the other half was like, he's black, kill him. Like, it was so fast. It was so fast. All right, so just to kind of continue the craziness of the multiverse, obviously in this movie we meet the Prowler, that is Miles Morales' uncle. Donald Glover does not go on to play Spider-Man, but he does go on to play a character that people think is the Prowler. And, like I said, you have the uncle watching Donald Glover on Community, and then Donald Glover goes on to be in the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon on Disney XD playing Miles Morales. So, all of a sudden, this world, this world gets more and more complex. And it's so funny to me to think that Donald Glover, even being in a Spider-Man movie, was such a crazy idea because Tom Holland wasn't as known as Donald Glover at that point or or whatever. Like, we've changed. Like, things have moved forward. And I think part of that Donald Glover reaction was racist, right? I mean, that was oh, very truly... Much, very yeah. much. Very much. Yeah. It, it's one of those things where I am glad to realize that something that happened in our own recent while we were conscious history of being on the hell site called Twitter.com now feels so old fashioned. Like yes. the out the outcry of that. And like watching the new Downton Abbey movie that just came out, I was just like, man, this is white. Man, this is like the whitest of all white things. Like it's so right. white. And like Downton Abbey would not be made the same way in 2022. And the casting that seemed normal to it in 2010, 2011, when they started the show, you know, in this kind of period when people are freaking out about Donald Glover playing playing Spider-Man, it seems so old-fashioned. It seems hopelessly, embarrassingly dated that that was only a decade ago. But we know that people get fucking worked up about weird casting. I mean, the fact yeah. that there are some people upset that Peter Parker in this movie, uh, as played by Chris Pine, has blonde hair. And we've never really had a Peter Parker with blonde hair. Although you can say, yes, there was a story in a Spider-Man where he does have blonde hair for a moment. <laughs> and the movie has a lot of fun with this idea of the multiverse being very similar, but a little bit different, right? Like, so I think part of the jokes in this are, yes, uh, Steph Curry is now a golf star and Clone <laughs> High is Clone College. And, you know, Seth Rogen is in mm -hmm. some sort of show about jockeys, right? But it, I bet Luka Doncic wishes that Steph Curry was a golf star. Oh my gosh. I mean, Kevin Looney, just shut that down. <laughs> Mom 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. But before we go too much further, I kind of want to say, like, this is our first time doing a movie with three directors, three directors, you know. Um, yes. And I kind of just want to give a little just the quickest backstory on their individual backgrounds so that you can see how this sort of fits together to so make this. I'm so happy you're doing this because I think, um, you know, sometimes that this movie gets spoken about as a Lord and Miller movie. Mm-hmm. And it's a Lord and Miller produced movie, but there's three directors, there's two screenwriters, there's a lot here. So this is, I'm really happy you're doing this. Yeah, for sure. So the very first director who was hired to work on this project was Bob Parashetti. And his story is like, oh, he has worked on a lot of movies that we have realized are, are out there. You listeners really, really love. He worked his way up on Tarzan, Hercules, Emperor's New Groove, did all those for Disney. Then he did the storyboards for a movie we talked about. Curse of the Were-Rabbits. So he's a big animation guy. Then you've got Ronnie Rothman coming in. He helped write the script with Phil Lord. He's the comedy guy, I would say, out of him. Like, he produced Popstar. He produced Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And he co-wrote 22 Jump Street. I'm going to just say about Rodney. Rodney is, like, uh, a friend. He is one of the funniest guys ever. Uh, He has a lot of producer credits. But what that means is he rewrote some of your favorite movies like he is on set as a writer he is punching up stuff he is uh he's just one of those incredibly talented guys who has great scripts of his own but is also like the go-to dude to be on set giving you gold i mean he was on year one with me and i got to see him in person after being a fan of him and i'm just like blown away by boom 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 just Alts, alts, ideas. Always thinking about the big picture. I'm so happy you got to do this movie. Anyway, continue. Oh, that's so cool. And then the third director is Peter Ramsey. And Peter Ramsey, I find just to be like this fascinating Swiss army knife of skills as a director. Like he's got tons of experience both in live action and animation. Early in his career, he was like a second unit director. He worked on Poetic Justice, or Higher Learning, Tank Girl movie. I love Tank Girl. Um, but he also did storyboards. So he has this idea of like visual things, breaking things down. He did Men in Black storyboards. He did Shrek 3 and he did Adaptation. He did the storyboards oh, wow. for Adaptation, which is wild, working with like the two dish for different Nicolas Cage's. And also Peter Ramsey was a director before he came on this. He directed an animated movie. He directed Rise of the Guardians, that like really hyper realistic looking uh, CG animation with all the flying owls, if you remember that movie. Yes, I do. So, I do. Yeah. So that is this tag team that directs this movie together. And I will just say that 
just so you know, too, like, and Rodney is the co-writer. So Rodney and Phil Lord wrote the film together, and Phil came up with the original idea for it. So it is interesting. So Rodney also is bringing that idea, like, he is a writer-director of this. For sure. And then there's another name that I want to mention, because he doesn't get, like, high placement in the credits, but it, um, it's an animator. His name is Alberto Mielgo. Uh, he's the guy who was the first person to really start working on finding what the individual look for Spider-Verse would be. Like, he did what they're calling the animation test, where mm-hmm. he put together images of how this could, they could fold graphic uh, comic book design into a feature film. He worked on this for, like, over a year and a half, you know, up to two years Um, And then he was fired because they were going, they thought different directions, like they couldn't quite see eye to eye, but he has put some of his original footage on Vimeo. It is super, super cool. And if you want to like another taste of just how talented uh, Miyogo is, he won an Oscar this year. He, we were talking about him. He did the um, short cartoon, the short animated film that won best animated short, the windshield wiper. That's also like online. If you want to watch it, it's beautiful and sad and depressing. And even within that short you see a guy working with so many different forms of animation. He is just a brain. Like, I feel like he's going to wind up being a really big figure. And I'm uh, pointing him out now. We're keeping an eye on Alberto Miego, seeing what he does next. Oh, I love that. Right? You know, Doctor Strange, I think in a weird way, while I like a lot of Doctor Strange, the most interesting exploration of the multiverses, and this is not really a spoiler, is when the characters are careening through like a dozen of them. But then when the one they land in is just very, uh, it doesn't look incredibly different than the Marvel worlds that we've already visited. So what I think is actually really clever about this movie is like we're not seeing multiple multiverses here. We are actually just seeing multiple versions of the same character. And I think in a weird way, that well, yeah, was... It's a Spider-Verse, right? Not a multiverse. I mean, do you think right. there's a difference? So you can enter the the verse of spiders, but not the verse well, of... Well, I mean, I think... Right, this is the... The MCU is playing with the multiverse at this point. Like, Doctor Strange introduces it in 2016. Then Endgame blows it out a little bit more. And then it keeps on blowing out until... 2022, where we have a whole movie about the multiverse. But here, instead of shoving our characters into multiple multiverses, they just open up the multiverses and take a character from each one, which is similar to the latest Spider-Man movie, uh, where the Spider-Men come into one universe. All the Spider-Men come into the one universe because they're kind of called there. And there's a similarity between the two. I'm going to say that this movie did it first, so uh, kudos to them. But I do think that that is really fulfilling to watch because it allows you to tell a linear story. It's not all about like, oh, we're now we're going here and we're going here. We're going here. The story is still the same. It's about how these heroes who are ultimately built from the same DNA solve a problem and work together. I mean, it's it's funny because I feel like so so much of this like multiverse proliferation is just these kind of movies trying to dig themselves out of a hole. And figure out how to keep making movies like this. I mean, because part of what's going on when this movie comes out is people are absolutely sick of hearing origin stories for Spider-Man. They're like, if I hear one more time yeah. about how he got bit by the spider, I will die. And so here they present that, but as a joke. And in fact, I'm going to play this clip, but I want to play it with a little bit of that opening music too, just to kind of get in the zone. All right, let's do this one last time. My name is Peter Parker, 
I was bitten by a radioactive spider. And for 10 years, I've been the one and only Spider-Man. I'm pretty sure you know the rest. With great power comes great responsibility. I saved a bunch of people, fell in love, saved the city. And then I saved the city again. And again and again and again. And I did, uh, I did this. We don't really talk about this. Because that's the thing, right? Like, you can't tell a Spider-Man story anymore where you hire a new Spider-Man to be young, but he's going to tell the same story because nobody wants to hear it anymore. You you have to go into the multiverse way just to kind of get around the fact that you're continually telling these same franchise stories with the same characters. Although I will say, in the Doctor, the, with the Doctor Strange comparison, the thing that really leapt out to me in comparing this film to the new Doctor Strange is like, man, they really just completely took the same villain plot and recycled it. Like, I need these multiverses to get my family back. Okay, they just did that again. They did it with Kingpin and they did it with Scarlet Witch. I think when you do something good, uh, people will steal from you. And look, these exist outside of each other. But yeah, you can see a lot of those similarities. But again, when you do something first, you own it. And I do think that this also speaks to the idea of this movie is as smart as the audience that is excited to see it, right? It constantly is subverting the expectation, what we know is going to happen. And I think that idea of we've already seen it that way. How do we see it another way is really interesting. Like when we first meet Gwen and Miles Morales comes in and tells that joke and she laughs, you think, oh, they're going to be ostracized. But no, then they sit down and she's like, I did actually like that. It's not funny, but I liked it. And it's like, oh, you've set something up differently here. You, It's just not doing the same thing over and over again. And that one thing that they do over and over again is part of the journey of the Spider-Man. Every Spider-Man has to have this loss. They have to learn this thing. And we are watching Miles Morales experience his origin story without us being hit over the head with it because we know every spider person needs a similar journey and we're waiting for that other shoe to drop that his his journey is going on throughout the movie but it's so hidden within the layers that you're actually having an adventure with that character before it's like well how does this work how do i make a suit what do i do like they take all that stuff out and i don't know i just i truly love the way that every time you think the movie is going to zig, it zags. Oh, yeah. I mean, my favorite moment of when they choose underplay yeah. is when Miles gets bitten by the spider. You you have that bite. Like, first, they're toying with you. You know he's going to get bitten, so they're really playing it out. Like, it's like arachnophobia. When will he get bitten? How will it happen? It's crawling on him. Oh, it's in the back of his hoodie. When is it going to bite him? Like, they make you get so impatient that you're like, just bite him already. So already they have you on the back of your heels. You know, like, not yeah. like I'm dreading watching this, but like, God damn it, just bite him. And then when the spider finally does bite him, there's a little bit of like musical kind of surge and thrill, but then they completely completely undercut it and show how insignificant it seems at the time. (gasps) Miles, let's go. I love that moment. And I also love that once you spend some time with him in the morning where he is experiencing the effects of being bitten by the spider, he's chalking it up to puberty, 
at the end of this sequence where he is walking on the side of the building, he lands back into his bed in this high school. Uh, Spider-Man comic falls on him and you see him repeating the steps of the Spider-Man comic. It's really interesting because the movie is incredibly meta, but without undercutting the emotion. And I think a lot of meta films go like, okay, all right, we, you see what we're doing, we know what we're doing, but this movie still grounds these characters and you're like, oh, yes, I see what you're doing. Spider-Man's in this universe. He's becoming a Spider-Man. He's aware of this stuff. He is there and you're still feeling for the character. It doesn't feel like we're commenting outside of it. I don't know of another movie that really does that where you can be cynical about the way that hero movies are made but also embracing everything that we love about these movies. It's too to many people's point about Top Gun Maverick, which I haven't seen, it's like, yes, they do everything that you've seen in legacy sequels, but it's actually good. It's not like the hackney way of doing it. Well, right. I mean, because here you have like older, cynical Peter B. Parker, when he's told like, you have to do this or everyone's going to die. Be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And come into it with that cynicism that's like built into his character. Like, yeah, you've seen me save the world a million times. This is how it works. Blah, 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 blah. In his utter lack of enthusiasm for the steps he knows he'll just take to succeed to win the day. It walks that exact line of like, here are the beats that this movie needs. But also we all know why we're here and that we've seen this a million times. Goodbye. Where are you going? When it runs again, I'll just jump in and get well, back you, to my you life. Can't let them run it. I'm supposed to destroy it so it never runs again. Or everyone's gonna die. Or everyone's gonna die. That is what they always say. But there's always a little bit of time before everybody dies, and that's when I do my best work. Aren't you gonna need this? Oh, you have a goober. Give it. Whoop, whoop, wait, no, not so fast. He called it an override key. There's always a bypass key, a virus key, a who cares key I can never remember. So I always call it a goober. Give it. And that's why I think that moment where you see him so distraught over getting a divorce from Mary Jane when he sees her, the alternate her, when he's a cater waiter, that, you know, where she wants potatoes or whatever she wants. Like She wants bread. And oh, to be honest, we need to think about poor, poor, poor MJ in this scene. Her husband just died. All she wants is bread. She tries to get bread. They leave and never get her bread. All <laughs> well, this widow wants is bread and she does not get it. <laughs> and again, Spider-Man letting her down. Or although but, but maybe this like, Spider-Man didn't like, let I'm her down. She's like, I'm sad. I need my carbs. I'm going to grief eat some carbs right now. But, and you're not going to let it happen. <laughs> but I will say that moment, that emotional moment between them is a meta moment or it's a we're getting something really interesting out of that moment. We're getting the fulfillment of seeing that storyline play out without having to go back to his world, seeing him make amends. You, there's some really clever. And again, I will say that, you know, this is goes on to Mitchell's versus the machine too. this idea of getting you to a place where you're watching someone talk about bread and somebody else whose face is completely covered going through this breakdown and you and that is such a lean-in moment of the movie it's like it's a core center of the film to have these moments and spider-man the last spider-man that just came out i get confused with all the titles uh is doing the same thing i mean you've seen that one right Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, thought, I, mean, I they, thought that was actually really fun. I thought the new Spider-Man was a good defense of Andrew Garfield because mm -hmm. I felt like that Spider-Man never got enough like 
runway to yeah. find out why he was interesting. I mean, yeah. part of the exhaustion of Spider-Man is because I feel like that Garfield didn't get to fully blossom. So it felt like, why are we still doing this? You know, to go from him to Tom Holland so quick was like, we are like they were. I think that the franchise was very close well, to just being exhausted. of. Well, Spider-Man. they're trying to keep the the lease on it going. Right. Because Sony right? has this lease and they know uh, and I'm, I'm simplifying terms. But if they don't make a movie with Spider-Man in a certain period of time, they give up the rights and would go back to Marvel and lose all this money. And then they finally figure out this plan, which is an amazingly crazy plan. But it makes so much sense. It's like, yes, we'll let the professionals take over here. And they will execute how Spider-Man should be because they clearly have the right playbook here. I also just think... I mean, but also like, and I kind of hate bringing this up, but I do, I'm going to anyways. You know, like the Sony hack where Amy Pascal's emails were leaked. Yeah. Which I'm still kind of mad about parts of that. Like, I'm still really mad at this one site that wrote a piece about Amy Pascal's emails where that went through all of her like grooming purchases to make fun of the things that like a woman bought for herself. I'm still so mad about that. But the interesting thing in here that does relate is the conversations that were exposed in those emails about people at Sony trying to figure out how to keep the Spider franchise going. Like there's an email that Amy Pascal receives. She didn't send this. These are not her ideas. But she receives an email from one of the executives at Sony that's like, here's how to make Spider-Man hip. Did you know that millennials are really into hot power yoga and veganism? Did you know that millennials type NBD as a humble brag? Our Spider-Man should definitely be typing NBD as a humble brag. Oh my God. Also, Spider-Man should totally be into EDM. This person also defines oh EDM. Ele- that's electronic dance music. And he should be totally into Snapchat. So he should be doing like cool sports, but also be like NBD about it. Well, that is the Batman and Robin <laughs> fucking Green Lantern with Ryan Reynolds thing where everyone's surfing and doing their bullshit. I, what I think this movie does really well, and there's so many things it does really well, but it goes back to the basics. Like it is made by people who love Spider-Man comics. And more than that, it peels back one more layer, which I think is so important. We talked about like in Porco Rosso, like I'd rather be a pig than a fascist. And here, this idea of anyone can wear the mask, anyone. And they show you there's a bunch of different spider people in this movie. And anyone has what it takes to be a hero. And I think that that is something that is getting more and more lost in our movies, right? Like, you can see yourself as, or when I was growing up, and I think a lot of kids feel this way, like Spider-Man is the their entry point character. I want to be like Spider-Man. He's a kid. He's fun. There's jokes, right? Batman, I, don't, I think Batman could be cool, but I don't think the kids want to be like Batman. They're like, I want to be driven by anger and, and yeah. madness. You know, they may want to dress up. Elon Musk wants to be Batman, but kids yes. don't want to be Batman. Right. And I think what is so great about this is that thematic through line. Anyone can wear the mask. Anyone can step up. And and it it focuses so much on that that we don't have to get into who these villains are. Why are they like this? Why is the Green Goblin more of a dinosaur monster? Why does Doc Ock, why is Doc Ock a woman? And why does she have these arms? Like, oh, we got it. We don't need to. And it shows you how much you don't need to explain because we understand enough most people that we don't need to underline or 
update or bring out, like we just brought it back to the core of these characters. It's like there's four, you know, four or five characters, all who have their own little separate arcs. And I would even argue, you know, Spider-Ham even has a little bit of an arc and he's just there for comic relief. Wait, what is Spider-Ham's arc? He gives up his mallet? Well, no, but I think that like Spider-Ham, you know, comes in, saves the day. He definitely saves the day. Uh, But, you know, Spider-Ham has lived with all the grief that the other characters have lived through as well, right? Like he has experienced these sad things. There was a joke in the movie at one point that he watched his uncle Frankfurter get electrocuted and oh boy, he smelled delicious, but it was so (laughs) sad. Um, I they mean, felt they like are, it un- they undercut they, the humor. The the humor undercut the emotional weight oh, of wow. Miles Morales. So, Wait, so they saved it for the end credits where you see them like tie up Spider Ham like they're going to roast him at a luau, <laughs> and then he goes to an alt universe where he's like roasting Spider Man. I mean, honestly, they're like Spider Ham. He is the oldest of these variations, right? Because like, he right. goes back to 1983, I think it oh, is. Wow. Like when he's in these kind of like weird spinoff animal versions of the superheroes with like. Of course, my favorite Captain America, but there's like Chicken Stein's monster who I love because he's like a monster, but he's made out of vegetables. Like he's got corn on the cob for arms and his feet are like open pea pods. Uh, Amazing. Uh, Also, there's like Elestro that's like Electro, but he is an eel. And this one's very subtle. Gwyn Stacy. But Gwyn as in penguin. So it's like penguin, Stacy. Oh, my gosh. Jeez, Louise. I love it. (laughs) Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. For the love of home. I guess this idea that I really love about this and that's so clever is it's an ensemble movie with the same characters. Right? It's like it's a it's a team up movie with five Spider-Men, like, or Spider-People, I should say, um, or Spider-Things, because, you know, uh, I don't want to characterize, uh, you know, uh, Peter Porker as a human. But uh, but that idea, like, that idea in itself, like, it's it's a team-up movie. It's like, all right, how are we going to defeat this? And normally, like, you know, Ocean's Eleven or whatever you have, you have, like, oh, I'm the safe cracker. I'm the, the fast talker. I'm this guy. No, like, this is all variations on the same character, and it works. But so then what is so the one unifier is all these people have been bitten by a spider. Is that the one or uh, radioactive pig or radioactive pig? Okay, gotcha. I mean, 
because my 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 heart really likes this idea of being your own hero that anybody can be a hero because part of why I find a lot of superhero movies in particular exhausting is to me they wall out any chance of like human participation like mm-hmm. if you have to be a Norse god right or whatever like then who cares like it, it matters less to me like if you're born to be big and immortal then fine go ahead and be big and immortal what I've always liked about Spider-Man is that you see the teenage in him central to everything else. Like the youth of Spider-Man, I think, is is really fun. So, yes, it like warms my heart to have like Stan Lee, you know, this kind of creative person who has made so many of these stories happen, telling Miles that, yes, anybody can be the superhero. You just have to wait until the costume fits. I'm going to miss him. Yeah, we were friends, you know. Can I return it if it doesn't fit? It always fits. Eventually. And it is sweet to like cut right from there to, you know, Miles wearing this costume at this whole rally while MJ is, you know, speaking about her dead husband. And you look around and everybody's in different masks. You know, not only are just people in Spider-Man masks, but they're all in like various types of masks. Some that are just sort of like stuck on their heads and aren't aren't moving. And they're talking about this idea of everybody being a hero. He didn't ask for his powers. He chose to be Spider-Man. My favorite thing about Peter is that he made us each feel powerful. We all have powers of one kind or another. But in our own way, we are all Spider-Man. And we're all counting on you. They're counting on me. Probably not you specifically. I, I think it's a metaphor. But if we're going to be honest about it, if you're not radioactive, you're not. Well, but here's, I think, you're right. Technically, you are right. Uh, You can't jump off a building if you don't have these certain powers. But that spider didn't find a specific person. That spider bit indiscriminately. And I think that that's part of it. Like, if you are open to being called for the challenge, I don't think it's about, like, are you going to be a Spider-Man? It's like are, if you are open to the world giving you an opportunity, you can step up and be a hero. A hero doesn't have to be someone who wears a cape. A hero can be, you know, someone who just steps up to authority. Someone who takes care of people when they don't have to or when no one's watching. Like like a hero is, there's so many different types of heroes. And I think the idea being, you don't need to do anything special. You just need to, you know, follow your heart. And like, I'm, I'm, and again, yes, this movie is about spider people, but that spider could have bit his uncle, right? It could have bit anybody else. Like there's, and I think the part of the fun of Spider-Man in general is, he keeps his, like, his naivete. Like, he is a goofball. Like, he's excited. He want he wants to be a hero. He is someone who is like, oh, my gosh, I get a chance to do this and makes mistakes and messes up relationships. Like, he lives in a real world. And very rarely are we seeing characters that live in a real world that have real consequences to keep secrets to, you know, this idea of changing and becoming someone. And obviously, it's like a, it's a puberty story to a certain degree too. It's like, as you're changing, who are you going to be as you become an adult from a child and what do you keep with you and the mistakes that you make? Um, But I do love that idea that, you know, we, there's a really interesting thing I once heard uh, 
an AD tell his crew? So an AD is an assistant director, and the AD is responsible pretty much for running the set, like keeping everything moving. And uh, he told his his crew, his people, he said, I never want you to refer to the actors as talent because everybody here is talent. That sound man is talent. That DP is talent. That grip is talent. That scripty is talent. Everybody here has talent. And the minute we elevate anyone as talent, it says, well, everybody else is not that. And, I, and that always stuck with me. I thought that was like a, a really cool way of looking at production, right? It's like we I are do like all, that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that, I was thinking about that watching this movie because it's like, no, everyone can be a hero. Granted, there are different variations of that, but I do believe there are so many people that we have seen be heroes. And in the last year, you know, to get up, to say something, to fight for something, you can be a hero in a small way. You can be a hero. You can be a hero by teaching school. You can, like, whatever it is, like, if you're bringing something and helping somebody, you're a hero. Um, That's fair. So, you, I mean, you could get bitten by the spider and be like, whatever. Right, right. Like the call to power is what do you do with it? Right? Do you do you put yourself out there? And 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 part of this thing is he has all the powers, but when does he choose to really use them and and, yeah. and although, open himself although, up to it? Although it does go through now that I'm thinking about it, this is another like very big ripoff that Doctor Strange does. So much of this movie is about having powers and not knowing how you use them. Like, he can't turn invisible on command. He can't make the blue light ziggy-ziggies come out whenever he wants to, just like America Chavez can't, like, control her multiverse power. So there is also this idea of, like, growing into your powder power. And, man, that movie stole a lot from this one. Um, but I guess they just stole a lot from the template. I mean, in a way, like, doing multiple Spider-Mans is sort of like how in the 90s we had all these, like, teen movies doing Shakespeare you know, like, okay, you right. know how, you know how Hamlet works out, you know how Othello works out or like taming of the shrew. And we're just going to do it with, you know, a multiverse of shrews being tamed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's something really, I love also, again, to go back to this idea of subverting slight expectations, right? When you meet uh, Miles Morales's dad, he's a cop. And what do you expect from this cop? You expect him to be like the authoritative dad who's probably really mad at his son for putting those stickers on the thing. And that opening sequence makes me laugh so hard when he honks the horn. He's like, you know, on the speaker, he's like, I love you, dad. Say it. I love you. And it's like it's and it's so long. And you watch all the faces of all the kids to see. It's like it's the most embarrassing thing. And I think that that's more identifiable to most people than Oh my dad hates me, you know, and I'm a, and and you know, and then I think the whole Wait, movie you're do you also do that thinking to your kids. Do you embarrass your kids? Oh, I picked him up my son in my arms this week from school, and I he's still old enough that he's okay with it. But I'm getting it in. I know I get it in any chance I get because I, I know it, at one point it's going to shut off, and I I am grabbing, I'm kissing, I'm snuggling these guys every <laughs> chance I get. Um, but uh, but he's younger than that, you know, I imagine at that point. They get a little bit more, they're oddly more uh, against their mom doing it than me, uh, which is good. I feel like they, like, right, not good for her, but I feel like they feel like, oh, my mom's kissing me, but if my dad kisses me, it's okay, because it's like, we're, you know, like, but whatever, I'm taking it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it is sweet, by the way. Like, I mean, like thinking about like the kid and the kid kind of genuine kid stamp on this. 
Um, I really like how they fold in this style of animation into kid thinking, kid behavior. I like when he shows up at school uh, after just being bitten, it uses his insecure thoughts that are kind of running through his brain as a way of having an excuse to throw like words on the screen and panels that he like pushes past or knocks aside. Yeah. Or they, they manage to really synergize like his interior with the visual representation of it in a way that I think is so cool. I gotta get in pants. Wait, why is the voice in my head so loud? What? Oh, are you okay? What? Why am I so sweaty? Why are you so sweaty? It's a puberty thing. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I'm not going through puberty. I did, but I'm done. I'm a man. And actually, you know what I really noticed on this watch? Like, speaking of this whole opening sequence of Miles, when he's walking to school the first time before his dad makes him get into the car, you're seeing a kid who is such a part of his neighborhood. Everyone's saying hi to him. He's kind mm -hmm. of the superhero of his neighborhood. And then you're realizing that now he's been put in this new school. He is, he feels invisible at this school. All he wants to do is like fail and get out of it. That little sequence where he's like trying to get zeros on all of his tests. But at the end, when he is Spider-Man, they actually replay almost that exact same scene. He is in the Spider-Man costume walking around through a neighborhood. Everybody's celebrating him and being like, hey, what's up? What's up? What's up? And it's kind of like Spider-Man just allows him to go full circle and be the kid that he wants to be at the beginning in his neighborhood. It makes almost New York his neighborhood. So now instead of living in one neighborhood, being transplanted and feeling lonely, the costume lets him be the person everywhere that he right. wishes he could be. I love that idea of his arc, in a way, is merging his two worlds. Because he likes, like, I think he loves science. He's not thrilled to be in this school, but he's really smart. I'm doing that with my son. We're going to probably switch schools and talking to him about not wanting to go to another school because all of his friends are at this other school. And this idea, like, it's such a relatable idea. Like, he needs to be at the school because he's brilliant, but he's missing out on all of his fun stuff. So this idea at the end that he's able to bridge the gap. So he has everything that he wants. It's going to be slightly compromised. And I think anytime that you are anything to anyone, you are going to have to make sacrifices and that will positively and negatively affect different people. But it's about that balancing act. But I think that that idea that they make fun of in the movie, like, oh, with great power comes great responsibility. I think this movie is less about that. Like, they almost make fun of that. Like, Oh, yeah, I they're think, like, I don't want to hear that again. Yeah. I think it's about, you know, I think it's about something less... Um, no, like that true. seems dark. Like, it seems like it's like, oh, yeah. well, you got to live this painful yeah. life now. Like you know, death it's like and taxes, kid, death and taxes. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, and it, because and this like movie this is more joyful. Right. Like the new Spider-Man, the new, new one with all the actual live action Spider-Men feels like it's about the Spider-Men forming a community. And here it feels like there's there's sort of that. Like he meets this whole community. You know, and I I just, by the way, like love that montage where all of the multi-spiders show up. You think you're the only people who thought to come here? Hey, fellas. Is, is he in black and white? Where's that wind coming from? We're in a basement. Wherever I go, the wind follows. And the wind, it smells like rain. This could literally not get any weirder. It can get weirder. 
I just wash my hands. That's why they're wet. No other reason. But if I really think about it, the emphasis on the community he forms really is just in his neighbors, is really just with New York. At the end of the day, it's like this Spider-Man in his universe, his singular universe, you know, being being the new Spider-Man in a universe that has lost its. And I, yeah, I appreciate that, that it's less about like, you know, a, a, a self-help meeting of like lost Spider-Man and more about well, like yes. finding out what your role is in your it- in your own world. There, there is something interesting about, I think you said triggered me about this idea that every Spider-Man is dealing with something going on emotionally in their lives. Not like, oh my gosh, it's so hard to be a hero. It's like, oh, I neglected my relationship with my wife. There's, mm-hmm. there's a weight to uh, the burden of a, a super... restaurant. Yes, there's a burden, <laughs> there's a burden to... A superhero that's more like life, right? Like we all can get caught up in a job and then you neglect the person that you love or you or you have different, you know, these different moments. But they seem to genuinely enjoy being a superhero. That's the one thing like they're not against it. And that's like a fun. And again, I think that makes a movie way more exciting to watch. Like I was on Newcomers at a Nicole Byer, uh, Lauren Lapkus show, and we watched Thor Ragnarok. And there's a joy to that Thor that isn't really there until that third movie where it's like, no, I love, I love being here. Like I am a, I'm a joyful character. It's like part of that is we want that joy. I think like we see so much dark and I think that that's the reason why Zack Snyder's, you know, stuff gets so dinged because it's like, we get it. Yes. The reality is it would be very difficult. The reality is you'd be tired. Yes. The reality is you would go a little bit crazy. You know, oh, it's like, my back. Oh, I'm just Batman with a bad back. But this is supposed to be fun. That's why like, people got into comics. And I know that there are, yes, there are, exam- there are exceptions to this. There are great dramatic arcs in comic books, but there is a fun. There's a, a resetability in the sense of like, a lot of the times comics are like sitcoms, like, all right, we run an arc out, we and then we refresh it. Oh, wait, hold on. The memory wave hits and everything cleans up again. Like this movie, like, all right, all right we go back, the cubes come through, we clean it all up and the world has changed and we're back to normal again. And that we know that we have somebody out there that's thinking of us. And that's what we want to know. Like, do we have a support system? Now we know that we have a support system. And in a weird way, that support system, even though we can't touch them and access them, they are always there. And I think that that's also part about grieving and death, right? The idea that we have these people in our lives that we know are there, but we can't really be with it. It's a, and that, and that this is a movie about dealing with that death and, and, and overcoming that too. I mean, that's why, you know, when I was going through kind of interviews with like Shamik Moore, who, by the way, I just, I love him in the, if you've seen the live action movie, Dope, I think he's so fun in that movie. He's so, 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 so fun. But uh, going through his interviews, looking for something fun to pull, what wound up being my favorite one was Shmeek being interviewed by a kid, hearing a kid come up with questions that he wanted to talk to this guy about. It sounds like you get really animated in the booth when you're like yeah. um, doing the voices. Yeah. So what bit have you enjoyed performing the most in the movie? Oh, my scenes with Gwen in the mm. movie, I think are really sweet. Yeah. I think I think uh, a lot of young, uh, how old are you? Um, I'm 14. Yeah, okay, yeah. so you'll watch that and you'll relate. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You have to make Miles' voice um, really believable, I can tell. So, like, how did you perfect Miles' voice when you were preparing for it? 
Um, I was trying to talk like I was 13. So I went in there like, hey, I'm Miles Morales. <laughs> and they were like, nope, nope, nope. We like your voice, Shamik. Bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, be yourself. And uh, really, it's just, uh, you know, Miles has a loving family. Mom, mm -hmm. dad, uncle. Yeah. Um, that's not something Peter had. Um, yeah. Miles is a creative soul. I'm a creative soul. I like to express myself creatively. Yeah. Um, Miles got bitten by this spider, and there's like thousands of people that live in Brooklyn. Mm. Um, there's thousands of people that audition for this role, yeah. and they chose me. So when I'm in this booth, I try to draw these parallels. It's like, yo, I am Miles in mm. my mind, like, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so just <laughs> connect with that. I just want to say, I feel like a kid is not going to be asking questions that interesting of Robert Pattinson's Batman. I think a kid's going to be like, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I totally agree. I think I think that there was something really interesting with Chadwick Boseman. You talk about this idea of the power of representing this image, right? Like who this is. Like he is Black Panther and too many kids they've never had you know, representation of themselves on screen in such a way that, you know, you would watch people just burst into tears when they saw him, like what he represented. He was a superhero and in every way. Uh, and I imagine at moments that is incredibly, yeah. especially through what he was going through uh, physically, like what that took, but the joy and it's like, I think part of that fun of of being in this world is when you see these actors who actually want to be there. It's like, oh yeah, I want to I want to be Tony Stark. I want to be uh, Black Panther. I want to be Spider Man. Like it's not like this. I think there was an, an energy, or there is an older energy of like, well, I'm just doing this. I want to get to my real yeah. independent films that no one's going to watch, you know. And like, I mean, not that's I'm not sliding independent films. I'm just well, saying, but like, okay, but but to parallel, I mean, that's sort of how I felt watching like the reboot of. Star Wars, where you're just watching Harrison Ford look forward to death. He's like, oh, right. when, do I, when can I stop being Han Solo? Now? Great. Oh, amazing. But con conversely, you look at Ewan McGregor, and I don't know if you've seen the new Obi-Wan series, but he looks like, oh my gosh, I can't, I'm so psyched to be back. And it does read, like it does read, I think it's like, I think we need to have, it's not just about acting well and being a great blank character it's like you're doing something that means so much to so many people that you can't fake the funk and i remember there was um an actor on a show who kind of like like shit on their own show because uh it was picked up for another season and that actor wanted to do something else and the fans are like fuck you because they're like, no, we love you for this thing, right? So like you are, it's this really delicate balance, I think, of when you agree to do a role like this, the responsibilities that it takes on, the the it's it's walking down the street and waving hi to everybody. It's it's that idea of you become this face. And, you know, I I have uh gotten to hang out with Daniel Radcliffe, who is one of the nicest guys, and so fucking good in that Lost City uh, movie. Uh, oh, he's so funny in that, isn't he's he? He's so funny. That scene um, with the cheese plate. Oh, I love the cheese plate scene in that movie. I so, I love that scene as well. <laughs> and uh, and when, but like you walk down the street with him and he is, I was talking about this, like this idea, like he is Mickey Mouse for all intents and purposes, kids of a certain age and kids and people my age know him as Harry Potter. He is the face of this seminal series in so many ways. 
And you have to, like, you understand, like, that's an obligation that you carry with you. And I've only seen him be insanely lovely in so many situations. And it's like, and I don't know, why am I off on this tangent? But the idea that is like, well, but I think, yeah. It's an important tangent. And I think, like, it, to talk about it, it really just goes back to the to the actual first movie star. You know, like, Mary Pickford, right? We've mm-hmm. never done a Mary Pickford movie on, on the show I don't know which one we'd even really do if we did, but I, and I feel like she kind of gets a short shrift in movie history. Like Chaplin gets all of the attention and Buster Keaton and like maybe Douglas Fairbanks, but Mary Pickford, like this idea is like, you know, she did these what stuffy films with girls with like big curls in their hair, which is actually yeah. not the case at all. Like, but Mary Pickford plays, you know, this young girl who becomes like a hero figure to young women because in 1914, 1915, you've never seen You've really never seen women in movies to begin with, or women like big screen women ever anyways. Like the idea of actresses on a screen that anybody can watch is already brand new. But the characters that she's playing are heroic to young girls because they're like, they're not like stuffy little prissy pants. They're like really bold girls who like, they're the first people into mud puddles. They're the people who like stick up for the poor. They're the people who like fight back against like, tyranny in a lot of its forms, you know, like the tyranny of having to be a little girl, the tyranny of being told what to do, the tyranny of rich people telling you how you're supposed to live your life. Like a Mary Pickford character is all about like inspiring small acts of like rebellion and kindness and love, like kind of radical kindness. And so when she was walking down the street in this exact same way, everybody felt like they had a piece of her exactly like what you're saying with Daniel Radcliffe. Like she couldn't paint her nails because like little kids would see her with her nails painted and be like, oh my God, she's supposed to be a little girl. Why are her nails painted? She couldn't hold stuff in her hands because people from far away might think she was smoking. So she couldn't twiddle pens, you know? She had to be so aware of this heroic image that she was presenting. And she kept it up. She kept it up for like 15 years before she retired. She like put that weight on her shoulder. And I think that's, I think there's something so beautiful in that. I mean, sometimes what we talk about a lot here is, and we started off the show today talking about it, the love of these movies, these comfort things, these, you know, I I don't want to call them guilty pleasures because they're not guilty pleasures. They're just pleasures. Like we can enjoy these things. We love these things. We want to go to the movies. I think that what you're seeing with like, Top Gun Maverick is like, oh my gosh, I got to go see this. They're like, whoa, holy shit. And it's different than a Marvel movie because you could just enter into it. It seems to be a movie that crosses all ages and and um, and everything. And I just feel like we, joy is an okay thing. And I feel like sometimes, especially in the world that we're living in, we dark replaces joy, you know, serious, seriousness replaces comedy. It becomes this thing where it's like, well, to be worthy, it's gotta have a a Mm -hmm. lot of weight. But the truth is the stuff that we truly love oftentimes isn't that it's like, I, I want to just sit back and enjoy something that is good. And that I don't have to, it's the reason why eight out of the 10 top, 
shows on TV are procedurals. It's like, oh, I can turn my brain off. And I think that, that that's a, a shitty thing to say because not turning your brain off. It's like, I just want to have something fun. I'm watching a fun little story, a little twist, a little mystery. Don't make fun of me because I'm not watching this overarching thing that I need to watch 45 episodes to understand what character did. And I have to pull out a Wikipedia page. And I'm not saying don't make those things, but don't just try to duplicate that over and over and over. Because what we have, I think, at the end of the day is like kind of a a weird mishmash where it's like, where are these like simple, fun comedies? And when they do come along or these fun action movies come along or these fun comic book movies come along, it's like, oh, my. Yes. Right. More of that. I don't know. <laughs> and you know what? You know what? Comic books are being proven more correct than we even know. I mean, we talked about like the Kirby crackle at the beginning of this episode, you know, the kind of thing that Jack Kirby would do, like these dots that would take over the Mm -hmm. screen and they would capture sort of like the idea of energy, right? Which is all over this movie. You see like Spider-Man kind of bursting out of these like Kirby crackle dots, you know, this kind of rippling energy effect. They have recently found out scientists who are studying antimatter, they got these first kind of visual captures of something that is fundamental to antimatter. They're calling it like anti-hydrogen. It's the opposite of hydrogen. It is like the source of energy that powers the world. When you zoom in on anti-hydrogen, it looks exactly like Kirby Crackle. Like this energy idea that he came up with to represent power and motion turns out to look a lot like the fundamental blocks of the universe, which is just fascinating. I just love it when that happens. And it makes me wonder, I mean, as we were preparing for this episode, I was like going down rabbit holes of like, do multiverses exist? You know, of course, like before he died, Stephen Hawking really started to theorize about multiverses and like the potentiality of it. Um, Actually, a year ago, we had, remember the NASA scientists come on and she was talking a lot about this telescope that they were sending out into outer space that they just sent out in December. One of the goals of that telescope is to try to see if they can get to a point in the universe where they're watching the way the light is bending in black holes, where maybe they can start to prove this idea of a multiverse theory, which as trendy as it feels like it is right now, you know, with this movie, Doctor Strange, with, you know, my favorite of all of them is still everything everywhere all at once. I mean, we are talking about a theory of universe organization that stretches back like tens of thousands of years. I mean, arguably, like, this goes back to, like, the very basics of, like, Hindu mythology. This concept may be novel and disconcerting to scientists, but it rests very comfortably in ancient Hindu cosmology. The Vedas and other Hindu scriptures are believed to date from 5000 BC to 26000 BC, are full of descriptions of many worlds whose inhabitants are ruled by kings on the human universe and gods on the higher universe. The many gods, in turn, belong to many different universes and plans of existence. The idea of a physical multiverse came later to modern science than it did to Hinduism. The concept that time is cyclical may sound strange to some, but it is true that it will happen over and over again. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, and honestly, it's it's even further than that. I mean, like, you know, in say like Buddhist scripture, you know, there's um there's a scripture called the uh Avatamsaka Sutra, and that in that scripture like describes this idea of a multiverse where like there's pantheons of different Buddhas and they exist on something as small as a grain of sand. 
even the Greeks kind of picked up this idea of the multiverse. You know, in the third century BC, there was this philosopher named Chrysippus, and he was like crazy prolific, by the way. He wrote like over 700 works, but he believed fundamentally that what universes do is they recycle themselves. They grow, they deteriorate, Mm. and then they regenerate again. And so as much of like a modern comic book idea as it is, I love that this idea of like, are there versions of us in other in other universes? Are there alternate uses? Are there other lives we could live? This is so fundamentally universal of a theory. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, and I, I guess as you're saying this, I start to think about what we were talking about a little bit earlier, and I'm, I'm bummed that I didn't draw this connection, but this idea of how we also deal with death, right? And, you know, there's a potential comfort and this is going into Deep and Dr. Strange too, like, well, that person I lost may be in another universe and I can, I can, or they're in another plane of existence, you know, whether that's heaven, a multiverse, whatever it is. And I'm okay with that because I know that they are there and, and I can feel connected. And what this movie is about is about someone rejecting that idea. They're saying, no, 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 I need them to be here. Like the villain of this movie. And again, we mentioned him earlier, Liev Schreiber, always the best, always killing it, should do more pulling his family in like in where the other characters are being pulled out of their multiverses and want to go back. He is like, no, I need to fix this. And that's the same thing. Again, you said like Scarlet Witch is doing that same thing. Like I'm pulling it. And it's this idea of like, there, there has to be like on some level, this, how do we come to peace with this idea that we don't have everything that we want here, but there is a world in which we do have everything, right? There is a world right. out there. And like, if you can, if you can be comfortable with that, there is a world in which that person is living. There is a world in which that relationship worked out. There is a world in which this, you know, you didn't get sick or, you know, whatever it is there. And there's something like at the core of humanity, like really beautiful about that. Like, can you like, wow, like if I can sink into that and just rest in that knowledge, like, okay, well that that happens and that's available to me, then maybe I can live here better because it's not about Kingpin doesn't want to like Kingpin isn't living. And these other characters are living even through grief because grief is a part of that. But it's also, but then at the end, it's like, I feel like Miles Morales in a way feels confident enough to be Spider-Man because he knows that other people are looking out for him, even though he's not going to see them. Wait, that is true because like, no, when you put it that way, like every Spider-Man in this universe, including Miles Morales, by the end of this film, has been touched by death. Right. Right? So they have lost someone very, very, very important to them. And they are, they can be sad about it. They can be devastated the way that like Peter B. Parker is, but they move on. You know, like this universe that this film takes place in, they don't fix it. You know, like MJ doesn't get her, doesn't get her husband back. They don't make it okay. They just carry on. And to me, that's the most beautiful message of everything, everywhere, all at once, too. Like, she doesn't wind up in the movie star parallel universe of her life. You know, Michelle Yao winds up in about the worst one, but figuring out how to find love in it anyway. I mean, that that to me, like, whatever, whatever multiverse my worldview comes from, that's the one that matches me the closest is like. I don't like living in a world with a lot of regret. I try to my best to live in a world of peace and that's hard. And sometimes I think right. I have to put on like very intense, like horse blinders to live in a world of peace. Um, but 
but what other options do we have to be honest? Like yeah. what, uh, what, uh, what else is there? Well, being at peace at where you are, we always are struggling to be like, well, what if, and if this was different, if that was, you know, deciding doors of it all, like, and it's a, it's a version of enlightenment that says, I will be the best me in the environment that I have instead right. of, I need to change what I'm doing. Like, I'm not saying don't change, but it, it, I think there's something really beautiful about that. It's true because, you know, I mean, it, it even kind of goes to things like tiny bits of jealousy, which like nobody mm -hmm. is above tiny bits of jealousy. Like, oh man, that person has that, that sounds so cool. But an advice columnist I absolutely love, Carolyn Hacks. She's at the Washington Post. Greatest advice columnist who's ever walked the face of the earth. Mm. You know, oh, yes. She, I read her. Yeah. Oh, she's so good. I mean, like she has said, you're not allowed to pick and choose piecemeal from this other person's life what you would take into yours. If you would want this one thing from their life, you have to imagine taking all of it. And are you willing to do that? And to me, the answer is always no. Right. And I, and I find that being a way of finding peace because it helps you be like, I would rather have all of these things I have in my life that I that I would prefer to have other than having to take on everything else. The grass always is greener on the other side of the fence, you know, in that sense that you, yeah, it like, because you're only looking at one thing. It's like, oh, I wish I would have gotten that thing or I wish I would have had that thing. But it also does a disservice to you in the sense of like, well, then you're taking for granted everything that you do have. That's wonderful yeah. and beautiful. And this is why Thank You Next is such a perfect song for this weekend. I, I mean, right? Because it comes out yes. and it's all about like, this person taught me this, this relationship gave me this, and they didn't last, but I have but I have evolved. It makes me me. So we know that this movie wins the Oscar, but let me ask you this. Uh, did everyone like it? Seems like they did. They did not. What? Um, no, it has actually wonderful reviews for the most part on Rotten Tomatoes, but there are several major reviewers who did not like it. I pulled out a couple sentences. The Daily Mail, they said, Spider-Man in the Spider-Verse is another disappointment. A monumentally long Marvel animation, which is at least 30% less witty than everyone involved seems to think it is. If ever a film could be described as being pleased with itself, this is it. It feels like an endurance test long before the end. Richard Brody at The New Yorker, man I absolutely love and disagree with all the time. He said, the phantasmagorical power of CGI is amped up and doled down in this animated extension wow. of the Marvel franchise. The spectacularly colorful, varied, and busy animation is impressive, but bombastic, leaving little room for wonder and suggesting exertion rather than inspiration. And Armand White from the National Review, he said he really had issues with this idea of everyone being a hero. Um, and he said, you know, the goal is to indoctrinate more viewers more deeply into the MCU commercial process. Whoever says Into the Spider-Verse is about fun does not understand movies or anything about oh, how 21st me. century media operates, particularly the exhausting Marvel franchise. Millennials and others delude themselves by accepting market promotion as part of a larger cultural narrative. State of the art of animation disguises into the Spider-Verse's political domination as pop cultural inclusion. This is not just freewheeling, imaginative, and progressive capitalism. It is the worst social, artistic, ethnic, and political engineering. Wow. Well, there it yeah. is. I guess I fell for it. You have been engineered. He does prefer uh, Spielberg's Ready Player One, he says. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, uh, well, I mean, we can, we can rightly say that I think, um, it's wrong. They're wrong. This movie is, I, I think starts, uh, a new phase of animation that we're seeing the reverberations of. I think this movie, um, opens up and almost teaches Marvel how to do their multiverses because of, as we've seen, there's so many similarities across the board. Um, and I truly believe it was made with love, like love and not like this idea of, Hey, he's on Snapchat and he's doing this. And, uh, you know, it's like, there is a, a, I think that there's a very, um, there's a again a joy a fun to like oh my gosh we get a chance to tell this fun story we can do this thing um but do you think that this spider-verse would be improved if it had included another variation on spider-man from the simpsons the one where homer is bitten by a radioactive spider that makes him paralyzed and he the only way he's able to fight crime and communicate is through farting and farting, farting webs at people. It goes something like this. They say no two ass webs are the same. Beautiful in its way. <laughs> I mean, you always play fun songs for us uh, whenever we get a chance to do these things. So I figured I would pull a little song for you. Now, I guess what I'm going to say to this is, uh, you know, Spider-Man is everywhere. And it lives through song, which, by the way, I want to comment. Chris Pine does sing those tracks on the album. They didn't even know that Phil Lord apparently was like recording uh, Chris Pine in London and said, hey, do you like, do you sing by any chance? And he's like, I wasn't into the woods. And, you know, and, and, and like, oh, my God. And then they sang. And that's how that like that whole like Spider-Man sing uh, that song came up. The Christmas holiday songs that that are continued on the uh, the end credit sequence there. But I, I think we have to go out with something like this. I don't know if you know about this. You probably do. You're smart. All right, here we go. Um. This is a song. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Is it strong? Listen, bud. He got the radioactive blood. I don't know if you ever saw Tenacious D do this live, but it was amazing. When I used to see them perform live, Jack Black would play Spider-Man. John C. Riley, I believe, played Spider-Man. Oh, wow. But they would have a guy running around on stage in a really shitty Spider-Man costume. And that, I love that that was a, a staple of their set for such <gasps> a long time. Anyone can be a hero. Anyone can be a hero. There it is. And you know what? Speaking of heroes... That leads us to our brand new series. We are kicking off our Summer of Heroes. It's our hero series. And we're going to talk about heroes of all kinds. But we're going to talk about 
one hero that we've mentioned a bunch here on the show. We've we really have talked about ugh, origin stories. My God, we've seen them a million times. But I would argue, when done great, they are really fulfilling. But also, this movie really set the tone for the superhero movies that we have in our lifetime come to accept what an origin story is. Would you agree with that? I would. I am so excited to do our next movie. We are doing the Richard Donner film, Superman. Uh, So take a listen to the trailer. In one tragic moment, that world was destroyed. But there was one survivor. Because of the wisdom and compassion of Jor-El, because he knew the human race had the capacity for goodness, he set us his only son. His name is Kal-El. He will call himself Clark Kent. But the world will know him as Superman. This year, Superman brings you the gift of flight. Superman, the movie. Superman is available wherever you can get your movies streaming. I am so excited. I I am a big, big fan of Superman. Uh, Superman 2, especially. Uh, Richard Lester, director's cut which is really just Richard Donner's cut. But uh, anyway, uh, but I'm all I'm all into talking about this movie. And I do think it's an interesting example of where we started. Uh, and I, I like the conversation that we're having with all these movies from from, you know, Akira to Porco Rosso to Top Gun to uh, to Spider-Verse and now going into, you know, into Superman. They're, they all feel like they're having this conversation about uh heroism and what it takes and uh and they all push boundaries in so many different ways they do i'm kind of excited to see where we take this hero suit like serious because i'm not sure where we go from here but i want to make sure we're doing not just heroes with capes but yes. all types of different heroes because this there's a lot of ways to take this man there's a lot of ways to take this. There's a lot of ways to take this. Oh, man. Oh, man. We're going oh, to figure it out together. If you have hero ideas, we're open to them. Again, think big. Go to our Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear, and there's a whole unspooled section. I also want to remind people that we have our Miyazaki shirt available at tpublic.com. Just search unspooled. You'll see all of our merch, but that Miyazaki is the Tom Brady of animation shirt, which some people love and some people hate, and that's why I love it even more. It is more. bizarre. I find it so bizarre. It's so bizarre, <laughs> and I think it's also, like, if you wore it, it it, 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 uh, it opens a conversation, and, I, and uh, so that's what we need to be having more of. Conversations with real people when you're wearing that shirt out in public. Uh, all right. That's all for today's show, and remember to rate and review this show. 
Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.